Knock, knock. Who's there? 18 million. 18 million who? 18 million people live within one mile of an active oil and gas well. You know, jokes are supposed to be funny, not depressing. (laughs) I know, but I just had to start off with the shocking scale of exposure of people in the U.S. to fracking and all of the problems it creates. Hydraulic fracturing, or fracking, is the process of extracting natural gas and oil from below the Earth's surface by creating horizontal or vertical wells in the Earth. During this process, drills create cracks down deep in the earth, fracturing the layers of rock where oil and gas deposits are found. A mixture of water, sand, and chemicals are pumped into these drills under high pressure to create those cracks, which releases the oil and gas at the head of a well. These unconventional oil and gas wells, or UOGs, have been a major source of tension in the United States because of the environmental problems they pose. But there are many other issues with fracking that we will dig into. Oh no, I'm not going to keep going unless you stop the puns right now. Okay, sorry, let's get fracking. I mean, cracking. Let's get cracking. (sighs) You were talking about other issues? Oh, yes. Well, we can hear from today's guests about those issues at a greater depth. I'm going to kill you. Dr. Chris Kasotis is a professor at Wayne State University, and he has been researching how chemical pollutants in fracking fluid affect health. I'm Elise. And I'm Hennessy. And we will be hearing from Dr. Kasotis about a less frequently discussed issue surrounding fracking, endocrine-disrupting chemicals in fracking fluid, on today's episode of A Daily Dose. first introduced in the U.S. in 1947 as a promising new way to produce energy on our own soil. It was even originally marketed as a more eco-friendly alternative to burning coal for energy, because natural gas burns fairly cleanly in comparison. However, now that we have a couple decades under our belt of witnessing the effects of this industry on human health and also the health of our land, it cannot be called friendly to anything. Except maybe oil company profits. Which, unfortunately, rule a lot here in America. True, but that is a discussion for another time. The fracking industry really started picking up speed in the late 1980s when horizontal drilling was introduced, which is the process where a drill goes down into the ground, usually 5,000 to 6,000 meters, and then the drill turns 90 degrees and continues through the rock formation, creating even more fractures to release oil and gas. Nearly half of the 1.7 million oil and gas wells in the United States have been built since just 2000. So this industry as we know it today has been operating for about 30 years, but it has really been on a roll for the last 20. That's a lot of time to have effects on the health of the people in surrounding areas. Right, but surprisingly... There's just so much we still don't know about fracking. Dr. Kasotis is trying to fix that problem by studying chemicals in fracking fluid, looking for ones that may be endocrine disruptors. Remember, during the fracking process, water, sand, and chemicals are pumped into wells. 
Even though chemicals just make up a small fraction of what goes into the wells, since such a large volume of fracking fluid is used, the total quantity of those chemicals can be quite significant. We've studied about two dozen chemicals uh, that are commonly, or at the time that we, we set out to do this, were commonly reported to be used in the fracking process. Wow, studying two dozen chemicals is a lot. It is really impressive, right? Like, studying the effects of about 24 different chemicals sounds like a whole successful life's work right there. But, ugh, I don't have the heart to tell you. Just listen. We've gotten a much clearer understanding of some of the higher-use higher chemicals uh, across the industry. But if you go back to, say, the EPA report on fracking that came out in 2015 or so, you know, that was, that lists... 1,300 chemicals used uh, in the injection process, just the hydraulic fracturing process. And so I'd say we're really only scratching the surface, right? Oh, no. And it gets worse. There's honestly still quite a lot of non-disclosure. Um, so most of the disclosure in the oil and gas industry comes via the... Um, and so I will caveat that to say that uh, in some states, this is now being required, but it's strictly voluntary in other states still, uh, which is the FRAC Focus database. And so this is kind of the industry voluntary disclosure website where it tracks wells across the country uh, and how much and which chemicals are going into that well. Now, the analyses of that database have generally found that there's a pretty high percentage of uh, trade secret exemptions still allowed, um, where companies will not tell you what's actually going into the well, uh, or at least for a portion of the ingredients going into the well, uh, will not will not tell you. Uh, it's actually also a uh, very poorly managed website, and so uh, there are all sorts of rampant errors all over it. So there have been some really good efforts recently. A couple folks uh, have published papers on this. Uh, and then there's also some folks who are are just, you know, trying to make resources available or more available. We're doing a lot of this, the data curation, right, that honestly should be being done at, at the stage of frac focus. Um, but there probably just aren't, aren't the resources for that. So it's being left to others to kind of curate the data, um, to go back in, to correct errors, to say, like, this, this uh, person listed, you know, 10,000 pounds of, of uh, you know, 17 beta estradiol being injected into this well. Well, that's clearly not accurate. And so trying to figure out, well, what did they actually mean? Uh, but they had the wrong, you know, chemical identifying number, right? And so they probably meant this chemical instead because it's only one number off. And so those things are hard to do and take a lot of time. So one of the biggest challenges with understanding how fracking chemicals are impacting health is just figuring out where to start amidst secrecy and mixed messages. I mean, if you were hiding something, wouldn't you think that means you probably know that you're doing something wrong? Yeah, I wouldn't bother to hide something if I wasn't ashamed of it or didn't think it could get me in trouble. Ding, ding, ding. Although the oil and gas industry claims that they don't want to share the total list of ingredients in their fracking fluids because they consider it a trade secret, it seems fairly safe to assume that the industry knows that what they're doing is capable of causing harm to people. And the effects 
on health of people who live near fracking sites have been documented plain and simple for everyone to see. But more on that later. I think I'm confused. What are all these different chemicals doing in fracking fluids? I mean, what's the purpose of that secret sauce? <laughs> that's a funny way to put it. Secret sauce. Because, of course, that's exactly what it is. Those chemicals are added to prevent corrosion of the well or to increase the viscosity of the fluid so the sand can be more easily transported, or to prevent foaming, or to prevent the growth of bacteria in the fracking fluid. It sounds like those chemicals in the fracking solution have a purpose. Those chemicals certainly have a purpose, and maybe we wouldn't be as concerned if they could somehow be contained. Maybe. But that's just not the case. Let's start by talking about how these chemicals are reaching people. So, in what ways are people being exposed to these chemicals? Well, when we consider exposure to these chemicals, there's kind of two sides to look at. Exposure to the chemicals directly in fracking fluid, or exposure on the other side to whatever mess of mixtures comes out of the wells as wastewater. Right, the before and the after. Exactly. And Dr. Krasotis described the possible paths to exposure on the front end of the fracking process. So there are so many pathways for exposure in this in this whole equation, right? So uh, you've got all of the trucks coming to and from a injection pad, um, you know, transporting chemicals, transporting all sorts of other equipment, um, bringing away waste once you once you start producing it. Um, you've got certainly all the chemicals that are being used to. Um, to do the hydraulic fracturing itself. But you've also got a lot of chemicals that really haven't been studied at all that are used in the drilling process. Um, you have chemicals that are used in the cleanup stage. Uh, and so these are all, you know, other sets of chemicals that are not, you know, the injected chemicals um, that I feel like have gotten very limited attention. Uh, so the Endocrine Disruption Exchange did a little bit of work on some of these. Uh, reported a couple chemicals that were present around uh, fracking pads at very high concentrations that were not known to at all be used in the actual fracking process. And they uh, suspected that they might be due to some of the cleanup or, or other aspects of the, the drilling process. So if chemicals used in the drilling process or a cleanup stage haven't really been studied, that must mean that there's not some kind of regulation that stops chemicals from being dumped on land. Like, just the possibility that chemical exposures that are used in open land can run off into water supplies should be an issue that is proactively regulated, right? You would hope so, right? Because that would be in the public's best interest. But unfortunately, it's not the case. So, Dr. Kasotis mentioned before that some stages have laws that require the oil and gas companies to disclose the chemicals that are going into the fracking well. But this sounds like a way to get around that disclosure, because the chemicals found by the endocrine disruptor exchange were not used in the well, just in the drilling or cleanup process. Even in states where disclosure of chemicals is required, it sounds like there is still a lot that these companies can get around telling you. You're right. And it's just as likely that people might be exposed to those unknown chemicals through runoff or from the chemicals leaching into soil and entering groundwater supplies. Let's talk about what happens after the water, sand, and chemical mixture gets pumped into the well. 
once you inject all the water down there, uh, you're trying to extract oil and gas from a, a non-porous geological um, layer underground. And often what you have down there is all sorts of trace minerals and metals, um, natural contaminants um, that you are then going to liberate from, you know, deep underground and bring with you back up to the surface. It's starting to seem impossible to even begin to study every single effect on the health of every chemical or mineral that fracking brings to people. There are just too many of them. So, you know, much of the water that you're injecting down will eventually come back up. Uh, and we think of that kind of in two stages. So if you think of uh, like fracking wastewater uh, as being uh, one flow back uh, and flow back happens in, you know, there's not like a strict cutoff, but we generally say about the first two weeks after, after initiating hydraulic fracturing. And that water's primarily going to be your injected fluids that are coming back to the surface. But then there's a gradual transition over time to what they call produced water. Uh, and produced water is going to be a mix of your injected fluids, but then also the formation that you have injected into. All of the contaminants that are naturally present there, any water that's naturally present there, then you're going to have a much more complicated mixture. These studies that have done kind of a, a time series uh, generally report that most of the uh, organic chemicals used in the injection process pretty much decline uh, over the course of the first couple of weeks. Uh, and then a lot of things like, you know, your trace minerals and, and things like heavy metals, right, will start to increase over that period and start to get higher after two weeks or so. Um, and then produced water is actually produced pretty much, uh, in most cases, the length of the, the producing well. Uh, and so if you have a well that's producing natural gas or oil or a combination of both uh, over 30 years, you're also going to be collecting produced water for that period as well. And so it does produce a huge volume of wastewater uh, over the life of, of any producing well that then has to be dealt with. And that process, I'd say, is one of the biggest concerns with, with fracking, right? So like, what do we do with all that wastewater? Once all of that wastewater is produced and collected, whatever happens to it poses another threat for exposure to a complex mixture of many unknown chemicals. Do they try to treat this water in a water treatment plant to remove the chemicals? Well, it's really complicated because the wastewater is a mixture of organic and inorganic chemicals, as well as heavy metals. So processes to treat fracking wastewater in like a water treatment plant can't really remove all of these things at once. It's really difficult. Okay, so what do they usually do with it instead? In a lot of areas, it's injected into the ground uh, at, at injection disposal wells. There's been a lot of work, including some really nice work by USGS, uh, showing that that causes earthquakes. So that's, that's definitely been, uh, I'd say, one of the larger issues. Oh no, so they drill another hole in the ground to bury a very mysterious and likely dangerous mix of chemicals? This is a huge problem on so many levels. Chemicals in the soil can leach into groundwater, and the drilling of these disposal holes can also cause earthquakes. That's another one of your jokes, right? Unfortunately, it's no joke. 
Although the earthquakes caused by fracking wastewater disposal are smaller than you might expect to see along a fault line, hundreds of smaller earthquakes with a magnitude between 2 and 3.8 on the Richter scale have been attributed to these activities in the central U.S. And before you say something about how terrible that is, and it is, just wait until you hear that this is actually a solution to a different problem. Back when I started my degree in Colorado, they were mostly doing these big injection, um, not injection, uh, evaporation pits. And so uh, the first time that we went out back in like 2010, uh, pretty much every well pad would have a little pond of, of wastewater that they would have kind of next to the well pad. And they would have little like aerators present in the pond that would kind of push the water up into the air and help it evaporate. And so, as you might imagine, that's aerosolizing a lot of the chemicals, but then also uh, it's just resulting in, at the end of the day, once most of that water has evaporated, a lot of sludge that has high concentrations of all those contaminants uh, that they were then often then just turning the soil over um, and leaving. I think that started to get a lot more attention in a negative way. And so on later trips out, uh, they had condensed those into like large football field sized evaporation operations. And you could see them from quite a distance away. And just the whole area would be foggy from all the, the chemical that they were and, and water that they were, uh, you know, pushing up into the air to get evaporated. And so I think that was kind of a response to, you know, people don't want that happening a hundred times all over their property. Right. But is made, you know, certainly becoming more of a, a localized issue then, right? So you're bringing it all to one place and creating a much larger issue in that one place than you'd have individually anywhere. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine the effect that literal clouds of chemicals may have on the poor people who live near these wells. That's exactly what we will look at next. Okay, I can clearly see the ways that people can be exposed to chemicals used throughout the fracking process, but what are these chemicals doing to people? It's like a lot of the work that I've done is focused on the water side, uh, and we think about, you know, this impacting people's drinking water definitely influences uh, air quality in these regions for sure. And so what does exposure look like via inhalation versus exposure via oral, like eating and drinking? It's a little unclear, uh, or, or even through particularly if, if water is you know being used for showers or things like that, or dermal transmission across the skin, right? And so we just don't have a clear understanding of that yet, and so it's hard to say, you know, what exposure looks like based on distance. But definitely, epidemiologists have started to report health effects. There's been a body of work showing uh, kind of increased health effects, uh, self-reported health effects in citizens living nearest uh, unconventional oil and gas wells, increase in hospitalizations, increase in asthma incidents and severity, uh, things like that. Uh, there's definitely also been a body of work looking at developmental effects. So things like uh, increases in preterm births, increases in low birth weight babies, there's been uh, some work from Colorado showing um, increase in uh, some developmental defects, things like uh, neural tube defects uh, or, or heart defects. 
And there's actually been kind of a, a growing body of work showing effects on the heart, particularly in early development, and not even just in humans, but also in animals as well. So it shows that there seem to be some, you know, substantial, uh, not substantial, but uh, there seems to be some good evidence for that across multiple layers of, you know, testing. Based on everything we've learned in this series, issues with developmental effects after exposure to chemicals definitely sounds like endocrine disruptor territory. Right? We know that the endocrine system is so crucial to early development, so something seems to be in the water here. Literally. It's chemicals. EDCs are in the water. I also know that fracking companies buy people off their land, right? Yes, and this is getting into another deeper issue of environmental justice. Fracking companies choose to drill wells in poorer communities where there is likely not to be as much organized community resistance. People accept money from fracking companies to drill on their land, knowing the effects it can have on health, simply because they are poor and need the money. Once they have signed away their land to be drilled on, and if they start experiencing a decline in health and want to move away, it is extraordinarily difficult to sell the house or property to other people, because who would want to move into fracking territory? This whole system preys on vulnerable communities, and these people who are typically already disadvantaged are now burdened with health problems from higher exposure to chemicals. I saw a video where someone living near a UOG well could literally light their tap water on fire. Right? That is this insane level of contamination that we're talking about here. Take home at the end of the day is that it was designed to be a bridge fuel to, to cleaner energy, and we're not doing enough to make that transition, right? Um, and so maybe we're not any better off. Maybe we're a little better off. Um, but at the end of the day, it's still not a great source of energy. Uh, it's still having a lot of environmental health effects. And until we make that more complete transition towards um, more renewable sources, more green energy sources, um, it's, it's not going to go away, right? And so like banning it isn't, isn't, isn't what needs to happen at this point, right? We need to take the step to the more green sources so that we can step away from that and, uh, you know, not have our energy system break down. Like Dr. Kosoda said, there are not currently any great options for energy production on a large scale in the U.S., but any operation that is introducing extreme amounts of largely unidentified and untested chemicals is a threat to public health. We need to start investing in actual sustainable solutions for energy. Right, because it's really no joke that fracking is a huge problem for both human health, health of ecosystems, and sustainability of the land. We would like to thank Dr. Christopher Kosotis for his special contributions to this episode. A Daily Dose is a production of the SCOPE Summer Research Program at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. SCOPE is funded by a grant from the National Institutes of Health, National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. These episodes were written and produced by Jillian Hughes, Mayra Lima, Hennessy Medina, Elise Pierce, Hannah Power, and Jody Zismore.